Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hello, my self-lovers. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure that you're giving yourself the gift of self-love. Now, if you don't know what the gift of self-love is, it's a workbook that will help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. And it's now available in stores and online worldwide. Oh my goodness, I've been waiting to say that because I've been working on this book for years. I poured my heart and soul into it, compiling everything that I teach at my retreats and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is this book is a combination of me sharing my life story and everything that's helped me on this self-love journey, including body acceptance, and it's a workbook that you can actually write in. So every single thing that I share, you can put into practice right away. There are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body image, confidence, self-worth, and self-love. I'm holding it right here. It's right in front of me and it's absolutely gorgeous. Not to toot my own horn or anything, but we've nailed the design on this one. It makes such a wonderful gift both for yourself and for your loved ones. Perhaps you have a friend that could really use this message and that, you know, needs a little push, loving push in the right direction. And I think that this book is just a great gift. Hence, the gift of self-love. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you can get it today by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. I'm certain that the tools I share in this book will change your life as much as they've changed mine. So again, that's maryscupoftea.com slash book and give yourself the gift of self-love. Hello, hello. Just a quick note before we dive into this interview with Kelly Yu. About 45 minutes into the episode, we start talking about toxic relationships. And I don't use the word toxic here lightly. When I say toxic relationships, I mean abusive, verbally, emotionally, physically even. We talk about red flags, warning signs, and also things that helped both of us get out of those relationships and finally end them and break free. The reason why I'm doing this little intro, even though I usually don't do this, is because I don't want anybody to miss that part. So of course, I hope you listen to the entire conversation with Kelly because it is filled with so much insight. But I especially hope that you listen to the part on toxic relationships, which is about 50 minutes into this episode. So if you are short on time, you can fast forward to 50 minutes in and make sure that you listen to that part, especially if you suspect you may be in a toxic relationship or you know that you may have a tendency of getting yourself into them and you need some tools to help you break free from that. I just, yeah, I just didn't want anybody to miss that part because it's a little bit later into the episode. And of course, a disclaimer, we are not mental health professionals. We are just speaking from personal experience. So what we talk about is not in place of medical nor professional advice, but rather just something to help you find some solace and some food for thought on your own journey. So I hope you enjoy this episode with my friend Kelly. And without further ado, here it is. 
Hello, my self-lovers. Welcome to another episode of the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Today, I'm here with a very special guest, my friend, Kelly Yu. Welcome to the show, babe. Mary J, girl, I'm so excited to be here. It's so funny. Right before we started, you asked me how you wanted to say my last name. And it's obviously not just you, but I just go with a short, short name. Yeah. I mean, I personally prefer Mary J. It's just a little more memorable. And like, I don't know, I always being first generation American and having like a really foreign sounding name, I always just got so insecure and embarrassed. Yeah. Um, And I'm just now starting to embrace it. But I I find myself just breathing a little easier when when people just go with Mary. Oh, totally. So how do you pronounce your last name? Just because I don't want to mess it up. I always ask because everyone messes mine up too. Yeah. Even though neither of our last names are that hard. No. Okay. Tell me yours. Okay. It's Jelkowski. Like it's just three syllables. Yeah. It's like not hard at all. Yeah. My real last name is Uchima. And, and the way it's written is a way people say Ukima, Uchima, Ukima. And then when I was in grade school, the best joke ever was Huchimama. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go with the U for the internet purposes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I could see why that would be like traumatizing in middle school but I feel like if it was in college and somebody called me hoochie mama I'd be like yeah bitch I know I'd be like owning it today we're going to the bar and getting wasted even though I don't drink anymore but okay I don't know (laughs) okay maybe you can totally cut this out if you want to but Mary just told me all that that's not even her name hello okay this is my first time sharing this (laughs) yeah so she was like (laughs) Kelly said something like how do you pronounce your name and I was like well I changed it this isn't like my original last name. She's like, wait, what? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And I changed my first name too. And then she was like, wait, what? <laughs> Times two. That does, for some reason, I was like, okay, you know, maybe we don't like our families. So we changed our last name. But I was like, first name, like you were such a Mary to me. Obviously, it's the only reason I know you, but, and obviously that's what you want to be. But can you just like tell me what your, your born did name was? So I did change my name because I don't like my family. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Um, But it's not as bad as it sounds. So growing up, my name, my first name was Mary Ann. Oh, okay. Okay. M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E. And the reason why I hated it is because my name in Russian is Mariana, which is like Mariana. Yeah. And I'm like, mom, why couldn't you just put like Mariana on the birth certificate? And she's like, well, I was like new foreign, like fresh off the boat. I just gave birth to you. And the nurse just like handed me one of those like name translator books. And she was like, here, Mary Ann. And they just like Americanized it. And I just hated it because every time I'd be like, my name's Mary Ann, people would be like, oh, that's my great, great aunt's name. Or I remember one time my best friend, (sighs) you know, in Alice in Wonderland, that part where it's like, oh, Mary Ann. Oh, yeah. I just like hated how it sounded. And I just got so sick of it. So when I went to high school, I just like made people call me Mary and that stuck and I love it. And also I was inspired by Mary from the secret garden because I was really into classic literature. So that landed really well. And then my middle name is actually my dad's first name because in my culture, we do surnames. Right. So it always just didn't sit well with me as like a, a little feminist in training um, because I was like, wait, I want like my grandma's name or like something yeah. pretty or like whatever. So then what I did when I changed my name is I like split it up and I put Mary as my first and then Anna as my middle because that is my grandma's name actually. Oh, weird. And then I put, 
yeah, I, I, I opted for two middle names because at the time my great grandma was alive and I knew she'd get offended. So I put Sophia as my second oh my middle name. God, what a people pleaser at such a young age. I know, right? Don't even get me I'm started. I'm going to change my entire legalized name just so you're not mad. And you're old. Seriously, like when you have a Russian Jewish grandma, <laughs> you do yeah. shit to, to make them happy. <laughs> Wow. Okay, here I was thinking your name was going to be completely different. So now it makes a lot more sense. But it is so weird that it was Mary Ann, then Mary Anna. And then Mary Anna Sophia. And then wait, it gets better. So my last name was my dad's last name. And instead, I changed it Mm -hmm. to my mom's maiden because we only have girls in the family. So I was like, who's going to live on the family name? Plus, I hated my dad's last name because like Jelkovsky, like it sounds foreign, but you can sound it out. And it like, Makes sense. Yes. You can figure it out. My old Russian last name, there were three constants back to back what? because there's a letter. Oh, consonants? Consonants, yeah. Like Con- consonants? consonants? What, are, what are they called? Constants? <laughs> you got it. You got it. You need consonants. consonants. <laughs> no, like, you're fine. I was just kind of like, do, I was like, do I not know? Do I, do I not know? <laughs> Jeez. I, I was thinking, do I not know what a constant is? <laughs> I, I kind of said constant. Anyway, continue. Wait, is it not constant? It's consonant. Consonant. Consonants. Oh, you're right. There's an O there. Anyway, consonant. you're it's the same. I'm sure yeah. everyone thought there was constants until I said that. Everyone constance. probably thinks I'm the one that doesn't. And that, it could be true. So it had three constants. Oh, yeah, to represent a Cyrillic letter that does not exist in English. Like it just doesn't exist. There's no way to translate it. It was so fucking hard to pronounce. Like I got made fun of every single day of my life for my last name and combined with Mary Ann Pepsop. Like it was just, people would be like, how do you pronounce your last name? And I'm like, bro, I don't even know. Like I literally (laughs) don't know. (laughs) Like I can pronounce it for you in Russian, but I know you're not going to be able to say it because the letters just don't exist. I really love that you and I both are of the backgrounds, which we have family members who are immigrants because my mom's Chinese. Her mom came here from China when my mom was born here. And they were also obviously given very, very Americanized names. Like my mom's name is Betty, which is... Oh, I love I feel so bad. for It fits her so well. But can you imagine that that's what your mom... It's like, because they don't know that many names so that she's like, I hate it because her siblings, her sisters have really nice names. There's a Lily and there's a Rose. And then she got Betty. She's <laughs> like, why did you do that? Oh, my gosh. It's so cute. It's, it fits it's her really so cute. well. Yeah. I love when people grow into their names. I know. So did you love your name growing up? I still feel like it's just such a basic name. I mean, how many Kellys do you know? How many Kellys do you hear of? Honestly, not that many. Okay, good. <laughs> this day and age. Yeah, I think there's more millennial Kellys. Yeah, there are. But I can't, like, you're the only Kelly that I think of when I think of Kelly. I truly cannot. Maybe Kelly Clarkson, but that's about hey, it. That is totally why I was her biggest fan. No lies. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, another me. I didn't love it just because my sister's name is Lauren and I always just... I just thought my sister was cooler than me in every single way. You know, so I was like, your name just looks better and sounds better. And realistically, I was just the type of kid that was so insecure. I just hated all the things that I had. So who even knows? I think my name's fine. Who cares? We just pick ourselves apart. Also, if it makes you feel any better, I know like 10 Laurens. So. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's such a popular name. And actually, I was named after Grace Kelly, who is a very oh. iconic old films actress. And my sister is named after Lauren Bacall. 
My mom loves old films. So we're just a bunch of Asian people who love white culture, I guess. <laughs> I love that for you. Um, I am going to ask you about that in just a second, but we're eight minutes in and I want to make sure to properly introduce you. You probably follow Kelly on the social media. She's at Kelly Yu, but she is incredibly passionate about breaking the stigma on mental health. That's what her entire incredible platform is about. She created and coined the Instagram and YouTube series called Therapy Thursday to share just how beautiful and meaningful connecting with the most raw, vulnerable parts of yourself can be. Kelly aspires to inspire those who struggle with their relationship with their bodies, food, trauma, and recovery. She's overcome eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and is grateful to share her journey and help others find themselves. I was just about to say, just out of force of habit, like, Kelly, welcome to the show. That I'm like, Boy, we already did that. Um, but before I, I did your bio, you mentioned being a family of Asian Americans who mm-hmm. really like white culture. But how do you think that your journey in general, body image, food, or otherwise, has been influenced by your culture and upbringing? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for that intro. By the way, I feel so humorous the fact that I just riffed on pointless things for eight whole minutes till anyone knew what they were listening to. Yeah, the interesting thing is I grew up living in Chinatown in Chicago. And if you've ever been there, it really feels like you're in a different country just because it's very, very tight knit, kind of off to the side community. It's great. And, you know, people love coming to have their tourist moments, but it really felt like I grew up in a small China. And the hard part is that my parents grew up here, were born here in America, but I'm also half Chinese, half Japanese. My dad's Japanese isn't really connected to Japanese culture. My mom, very intertwined with Chinese culture. That was her first language. We also lived with my Chinese grandmother. And every kid that I went to school with, because I went to school in Chinatown, was Chinese. And everyone was super, super typical Asian body. And I'm only four foot 11, y'all. Like, you know, I love myself. But growing up, if you don't have height and you're and you're gaining weight and just kind of growing into your own body. For me, I always legit just called myself a thumb, <laughs> you know, Aww, and um, little Kelly, when you're younger. Yeah. And when you're younger, you just do compare your body to other people. And frankly, I just remember mostly comparing myself to people on TV too, like magazines, Nickelodeon, Disney. And I just knew I looked really different. I felt like I didn't fit in with the other Asian kids because I felt too white. But I knew that these white kids on TV didn't look like me either. So my body image, I was just feeling like I was the only one. And I thought I was the only one who felt uncomfortable, which was so weird. Yeah. I just finished reading Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race is the subtitle. And there was a whole chapter on the Asian American experience and you well, you lived it and you summarized it for us so well that Mm -hmm. especially for Asian Americans, like having a lighter skin color, but then still being a person of Mm -hmm. color kind of creates that like not here nor there, like lack of belonging. A hundred percent. And I didn't know, uh, I think it really impacted my ability to socialize and make friends. And so since I didn't feel that connected with other people, it was very easy for me to just live inside my head. So the obsession with my body and food and all that stuff had such a bigger platform in my brain space to thrive. But honestly, what really kickstarted it was 
you know, we all, I think, have insecurities in some type of way. But in third grade, there was this kid that I had the hugest crush on. Like, I just thought he was so cute. Everyone was in love with him. And we were playing in the playground after school. And I swear, I don't know if it's just my memory, but he came up to me and legit just said to me, you're kind of chubby, huh? Mm. And I'd never heard that. My parents had always been never really commented on our bodies, but we definitely heard things in the house that were like, you know, oh, we're only going to get fat-free milk or let's buy the light yogurt or don't eat the fat on your meat. But they never commented on our bodies. Uh, So I just felt very, it was like the first time someone Mm -hmm. threw that in my face. And I only lived eight houses down from my school. So I just grabbed my backpack, walked home. And I swear, I just decided I'm not eating today. And after that, I didn't for quite some time. Like I would just eat whatever got by so you don't pass out. But it changed my whole life, that one moment. How old were you? Mm, 10. 10. That's Mm -hmm. really young. Yeah. Changed me. I immediately just became a different person. Like I dropped weight so quickly. It was a game. You know, we all know that now. Eating disorders are a lot about feeling like you're in control. You heard one comment. You feel like what they said means it's not good. And you just are on a track and you run. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like that was the first time that you were really like conscious of your body. I don't mean like self-conscious, but usually when we're kids, we we don't even understand what our body does, does or what it looks like. We just understand it in terms of like what it lets us do. And we're just kind of existing. And then there's always a pivotal moment where you're like, wait, I actually became very conscious of my body and the way it looks to others. Yeah. It was almost like, oh, you're looking at me? Yeah. And it's not in a good way. So mm-hmm. what the eating disorder of choice <laughs> that I chose mm-hmm. was anorexia. You get to disappear. You get to really try to physically try to shrink as much as possible so no one's ever going to look at you to say something like that again. And what really just angered me every single day of my disordered behaviors was now people were saying they're worried about me. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that angers someone more in a struggling moment when someone just criticizing you again for something you think you should be doing. Hmm. Yeah. Did anyone ever know that you were struggling? Because, okay, I apologize if this sounds fucked up and please correct me when I stumble because I know I will. But I know that, or at least my experience was that especially when I was in the depths of my eating disorder, I remember one really fucked up thing. My best friend and I used to say to each other, and she was like a big person who fueled my disordered behaviors, her and her mom. But we would say something along the lines of like, I wish I was just Asian so I could eat whatever I want Mm. and like not gain weight. So I'm just wondering like how that intersects when you actually do have an active eating disorder. But even though you did drop weight, maybe it still looks like people expect you to look based Mm -hmm. on how a lot of other Asian, but not a lot, obviously it's a stereotype, but yeah, based on that stereotype, like how did that, did anyone notice? Did anybody, do you feel like you were discredited for that or were any family members that got involved or anything like that? First of all, I think it's so interesting that that's what you would say to your friend. Like I literally, I vividly remember. Yeah. Gosh, that's so wild. Um, well, my sister and I both were definitely on the, you know, the side of not being very, very thin. So I guess for me, 
I definitely felt like, oh, why, why is my body like this? Because also my mom was a pageant queen when she was younger. So she literally looked like a Chinese supermodel. But when she got older, you know, your body just changes. You've had kids, you're working. And so she had a lot of insecurities around her body. So obviously you hear that. But another thing is, I knew that I was different and I hated it. And that's what really bothered me about people making comments. I thought that I was getting the way that I was supposed to look. So when people who were also super, super Chinese, like the secretary at our school, she said this word for word to me. She said, you know, if you don't eat, you're not going to get any boobies. Like no one knew how to talk to me at all about it. Like they would just be like, are you okay? Like they just never even asked me if I was like, I don't know. I probably took everything as a threat at that time as well. But um, I think what was interesting is that when I did pageants when I was 22, so I'm 27 now, I did a pageant because my mom was Miss Chinatown and traveled all over the world doing pageants when she was younger because she didn't have much going on in her life. And at that time, she thought that was a way to kind of explore the world. And she's a singer. I'm a singer too. So it was a really nice way for us to perform and get out there because I love performing before social media. I was doing theater. I was doing singing all over Chicago. That's what I really wanted to be. You know, I like using my voice. But um, that was when I was getting really, really sickly again. I had been in recovery for a long, long time. And yeah, the Asian community expects you to be a not to be racist against my own people, but a chopstick. Mm. (laughs) Like they really do. Like Mm -hmm. I was so not okay during that time. And I still looked way bigger than a lot of the girls I was competing against. Mm. How did your mom help contribute or make worse that experience? Because I had, when you brought up your mom and doing pageants, Mm -hmm. I instantly like felt this visceral reaction in my body because growing up, the number one person I would compare myself to is my mom. Really? I have a very petite mom. She was always petite. Now she's like literally shredded. Like she is like a six pack. Really? Yeah. My mom is very active. Um, She's very just like a small human. And I always grew up like envying that because I started developing early. I was always insecure about my height. Like till this day, last night I was getting ready for dinner and I I still have a thought of like, should I wear heels? Because I don't want to be too tall. Mm. Um, So when you mentioned that your mom did pageants Mm -hmm. and you did one too, like what, what's your relationship with your mom like? Well, my relationship with my mom is amazing because luckily, I don't know if you've experienced this too, but like she does see what I do online and it's definitely transformed her relationship with her body, which is such an interesting thing is that the kids end up being the parents, you know, in some ways, right? Yeah. And I feel lucky that, Mary, that must have been so hard because that would have been killed me. (laughs) Sorry, mom. But luckily, you know, when we were growing up, she was overweight, but she was depressed. So because she was overweight and unhappy about it, that's when inside, you know, oh, well, then that's not a good thing to be. And because I knew those were her old pictures, she looked incredible. It's kind of like you just can see that someone is not happy with them not looking that way. So even Mm -hmm. if she didn't look that way then, I could see that she wasn't happy with herself. Yeah. Uh, That is just definitely something that we internalize for sure. Mm -hmm. That becomes a big part of our upbringing. And when and why did you start like sharing your heart on social media and this journey? Well, I didn't know how to talk to myself. That's for sure. 
right? I think it was at the beginning of me discovering that I had these thoughts and feelings in I didn't want to just act on them. So all disordered behavior is you having feelings, but you do something else instead of discussing it with yourself or with someone else. And this was back in 2015 when I was so obsessed with bodybuilding and the fitness community. Mary knows. I mean, we Mm -hmm. were both obsessed and in that because that's what social media was. That was what gave you clout was being someone obsessed with dieting, tracking your macros, going to the gym, working on your delts and shit, you know. Uh, that was the cool thing. But my binge eating was at an all-time high. I mean, I'd been binge eating since I was 11 years old. From 10 to 11, I was killing it with the anorexia and starving until a doctor was like, nope, no, no more. And I was just forced to stop doing it. After such a long period of being so hungry, the binge eating never stopped from 11 to 20, 22 every night every single night. There was not one night. And maybe if I was traveling with people, Mm -hmm. but um, there was no way you were going to take that ritual away from me. It it wasn't just because I was hungry. It was because I was just so lost in my life that food was like my hug at the end of every day. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started realizing I want to talk about this to people because all of us in this fitness world, I highly doubt that we're enjoying our egg whites and not eating a bunch of Pop-Tarts in secret in the closet at night. There's no way. Yeah, there's There's no no way. way. Especially the Pop-Tarts. Yeah. You, I've known you, I've known of you for like five, six years now because I used to watch your YouTube videos when I was trying to get through that. Like before we even knew each other. But the day you followed me back was like the third best day of my life. Mary, stop. See, I don't (laughs) understand how to receive this because I view you as one of my true, well, first you have been an idol, but two, like a friend. And it truly makes me so physically uncomfortable to hear that you ended up having that view about me. Like, it's so cool to me because I really admire what you do. Thank you. You were just receive it with love, Kelly, because you were the only person on YouTube talking about this at the time. Like now I feel like we've gotten a little comfortable with vulnerability. I would even Mm -hmm. say that a lot of it, this is a judgment. Maybe I'm projecting, but a lot of it. I'm so ready. I know what you're going to say. Go. (laughs) Well, a lot of it feels performative, um, right? Like the vulnerability aspect, but you were doing it before that was cool. Like you were showing true vulnerability because you were just like, talking about everything that I was so scared to admit to myself. And I would, mm. I would binge watch your YouTube videos while binge <laughs> eating cereal and peanut butter and Pop-Tarts. Why is it all? It's always cereal for sure. Cereal is it's the al- shit. That's why. <laughs> it's always cereal. Mine was always cereal and it was always chips. All, always, mm. always, always. Oh, that means so much to me, Mary. And yeah, I think The reason I did it and wanted to just make videos about it was one, because on Instagram, when I first posted like something about it, I just got a lot of questions. And I was like, I don't want to type all this. I just want to like talk. So that's so funny about how content used to be is like, you just did it because someone was asking instead Mm -hmm. of trying to get people to watch you say it. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Like I just thought I don't feel like typing. Uh, (laughs) And then I think I just felt like I was the only one. I wasn't ready to talk to a lot of my family or close friends about it. And I felt like if someone was watching it, it's because they already knew. So I didn't feel like Mm. ready to make someone understand. I needed people who already understood. Yeah. I'm going to direct anybody who is struggling with binge eating to your YouTube channel. I know you don't post as much about that anymore. But that brings me to my next question is like, 
you are clearly a multifaceted, multi-passionate creator between singing and video making and just your whole like vibe and aesthetic on Instagram is like dreamy, airy, heartfelt, like calming, thoughtful, just very much from a place of like service and just with so much love. How did you land on that vibe? Like, how are you so good at creating things? Do you feel like, I don't know, like, what's your relationship? Mm. Do you consider yourself a creator? Because I also know that you worked in a university lab and you're a geek like me. (laughs) Yeah. So like, how do you, how are you so good at everything you do? Like, what the fuck? Mm. Well, Mary, I think you and I both are like creatives. And I think a lot of you listening to so many of us have a creative side and it manifests in so many different ways. But yeah, I mean, I went to college. I had an econ degree. I was very involved in child development research. I had been an academic researcher for so many years. And then I ended up becoming the coordinator of that research project. It's a longitudinal study where we studied the development of children, studying saliva samples, fecal samples, DNA, weaning practices, attachment styles between moms and their babies. So fascinating. But that's why I became so addicted to social media. It's because ever since I was younger, I felt like I didn't have a voice, but I knew I had so much to say. And so when social media came, I was like, this is my chance. You know, I wanted to be seen. But uh, in real life, honestly, I was not much of a very social person. Like I'm very quote unquote, like good at socializing, but I felt so insecure with people in real life. And by that, I mean, I don't think I ever allowed myself to get to know people because I was always in my head thinking, what do they want to hear from me? So because I don't see you when I'm on the screen, I get to just put it out. I'm more myself. And when I'm creating on social media, I think the reason why my content resonates in that way, which you so kindly complimented me on, thank you. It's like, I think my style has always been speaking from a stream of consciousness because I do think that we all feel and think almost in the exact same way doesn't mean that we have to experience the same stuff. So I've really channeled a way, I think, to talk about it in a way where maybe you, you, you're you seeing me talk, but I feel like you hear your voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely get that. I feel like when I read your captions, for example, I was like, wait, didn't I just text that to my best friend? (laughs) (laughs) That's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) No, like truly like the way you type. I mean, you're, you're very good, like stylistically at like bringing that to life. Like whether it's not capitalizing the first letter of every sentence or like the little (laughs) emoticons you use, or like, you're very good at like, like bringing that out, like with the whole vibe, you know what I mean? Like not just the words, but with like everything, even like your style choices or how you choose to present it or like your very informative threads or your very like, I know you say it's stream of consciousness, but when I watch your videos, your YouTube videos, especially, they're like very well organized too. Like you're a clear, you must be a clear thinker if your stream of consciousness is like that. Yeah. We also call that perfectionism. (laughs) Oh, Right. Like the toxic, like (laughs) me complimenting the toxic shit. (laughs) Right. It's so it's so interesting. Right. The things that I think um, that's a fascinating part about what you and I both do is a lot of us have a lot of pressure that we only put on ourselves to make it so easily digestible by people. But that's what makes it Mm -hmm. so 
valuable too. Like there are things when I realize how neurotic I get when I'm typing something or creating mm-hmm. something, but there is something you're trying to convey and and it seems yeah. silly, but it is it is true style and art because you want it to be perceived that way. Yeah, for sure. My boyfriend likes to remind me that you're like this because you care. Yeah. <laughs> and like you don't necessarily have to change it about you. But what's a this is a selfish question. What is a post or a topic or a format or something that comes so naturally to you that you really, really love creating that just feels like so you like if 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 likes or monies or yeah anything didn't exist, like what would you like what what's your favorite? I I love stories. If 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 social media was only stories, because I do this thing every single week, which is these little polls I do. I do this very specific series of polls. It's called, uh, it's like a check-in, but I type it in a way where I go, right now I feel, and then I give people a choice of going more smiley, more not so smiley, and then I ask them how it's been lately. And then I do tons of different affirmations away where it's them talking. So when they choose, it's them instead of answering a question. And I feel like that's what has always been very inviting to me. I don't want you to ask me something. I want to just be invited in a way where I'm speaking. And I don't know, there's something that I just love about, I don't know, maybe I just want to be a vessel for people to get in touch with themselves. And that's probably a a mental illness in itself. But, um, you know, that's my favorite thing. What about you? What piece of content? I used to be posts, but I think there's a lot of pressure on posts for me now. So stories are my thing currently. I feel that. By the way, I don't remember where I heard this, but somewhere I heard that the best leaders teach people how to think. Mm. Like they hear your voice in their head, but they also hear their own voice. You know, like you're, Whoa. do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's what you're calling people to do with those story check-ins. Yeah, I really do. Because I don't want them to be thinking about me. I want them to think about them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, exactly. you, what's your fave? My fave is podcasting. Honestly, like I would gladly, and I hope to get to this point, I would gladly outsource my social media completely and, you know, pop in when I, when I feel inspired or something, but I would, you know, pre do content or like have somebody else do that side of it. And then like podcast. And I told you if I was famous enough, like I would fully produce this and make it on video and like, literally do this full time because I always joked like ever since I was like 18, I always joked that I wanted a talk show. And then I never knew that podcasting was a thing until just a couple of years ago. So I would go full force into this, into like speaking and writing and honestly, like ditch any kind of social media. Right. There are certain things that I like and some pieces of content that I'm really, really proud of, of course. But I don't know if the vessel is as conducive to not just my mental health, but optimal growth for my audience. Oh, I agree totally. I mean, I'm I'm obsessed with podcasts and you're so good at what you do. And I am only just venturing into the arena with my Therapy Thursday podcast hitting the planet in July, you know, I've wanted to do it for a long time, but I admire what you do because I was so scared to do it. And for people who don't know, it's a huge investment unless you're editing it yourself, which I don't understand how I've edited all my own stuff and always do. But 
for things like this, this is a whole nother planet of podcasting. And it's a huge investment piece. And Mary, you can do it. I mean, you've already been doing it so well. People are absolutely in love with you. And you inspire me to keep doing it. I mean, Mm -hmm. I see that being your future because it's your present. It is. You're so sweet. Thank you. Thank you. It is a big investment. It's very, it's, you know, it's a financial investment. It's it's a big commitment. It's a lot of emotional labor too. But I feel Mm -hmm. like... Sometimes I almost feel guilty posting on social media this day and age because I almost feel like I'm contributing to the noise, you know? Oh, I agree totally. Whereas like when I release a podcast episode, I'm like, I've really thought this through. It takes me about an hour minimum to prepare. Like I know that every single episode has value. And even if I'm not like, even if it doesn't live up to my perfectionistic expectation of it, Mm -hmm. I know deep down in my heart that people appreciate just the conversation. So that's like, yeah, that's like what really sets my soul on fire. And by the time this episode comes out, I think Therapy Thursday will be live and you can go listen to Kelly, um, all the amazing guests she has on her show. And we recorded an episode together too. So you can go listen to me on the Therapy Thursday podcast. I'm so excited for that to come out. But I digress. Um, Okay. Switching the topic here, I have no smooth segue, but you... We don't need it. We don't need it. (laughs) We love the organic energy of you. (laughs) You speak a lot about your sobriety journey, and I believe you're coming up on one year sober, which is so exciting. Congratulations. Uh, Could you tell us more about why you chose to do this and what you've learned from it? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean... I have been known as a pothead for a long, long time because <laughs> I, I love it. I, I love weed. I uh, grew up in Chicago. Drinking and drug use is something that's pretty normal from a young age in high school. And I frankly think it was, for me, beneficial to have done a lot of it before I went to college because when I went to college, I didn't feel like I had to go nuts on any of it. I mean, I kind of looked at a lot of people. I was in a sorority for a year. Oh, yikes. I did not like that. You know, just didn't fit in. I was the only non-white person and whatever. We get it. We know what that's like in that kind of world. But yeah, when I uh, got to college is when I really chilled out on a lot. But I was struggling very severely with anxiety, depression. So weed was like my number one thing. It was a way to numb out a lot. It was a way to also kind of be antisocial. It became a ritual, just kind of like how binge eating is, you know, I did have anxiety and stress, but like what we did for my system, it responds in a way where I just check out. A lot of people end up getting creative and excited or happy. No, 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 no. I'm just like, don't talk to me. I'm in my own world. And unfortunately, it really fueled and went hand in hand with binge eating because you do get the munchies, right? And so I, for years, I would get high just to eat a lot to hopefully not feel bad for the fact that I couldn't get over binge eating. And if you really don't address that connection, it stayed with me even until through the pandemic uh, in 2020. In June 21st of 2020 was when I decided to get sober because through the pandemic, you know, I lived alone. I couldn't see my family for a while or any of my friends. I had always had a habit of smoking every single night, but then it started to really just become a fog for me. I didn't feel present at all in my life and I couldn't even choose to not be high. I I just 
was very addicted to it. And when people say you can't get addicted to it, you can get addicted to anything, anything that becomes a habit you can't control and you want to stop it and you can't. I told my therapist in a session, that's why I decided to get sober. I said, I just feel like I want to be alive. And by using it, I can't. It allows me to want to be totally dead. Mm -hmm. And I'm dead inside. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't until that day, I wanted to be dead inside. I've always struggled with wanting to just numb out because I've had a lot of trauma in my life. I've had a lot of family dysfunction. So there was a lot that I was just trying to mute. So yeah, I mean, I legit went cold turkey. Wow. What was that like? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay. Very hard and then not hard at all. And then hard again. I mean, it's like losing your left side of your body. I mean, your body is really used to it. I had no routine or ritual anymore. You know, you'd come home from a long day of work and light up. It's just a nice treat that you feel like you have. And that's what binge eating is too. It's like, it's my treat, right? It's my thing. And I felt really alone because even though weed is not a person, it's uh, it felt, felt like a warm hug. It was my thing. So I actually felt very scared some nights. I'd lay in my bed and just look around almost like I felt like I was five and afraid of the dark because you're just aware of stuff. You can pass out so nicely when you're high and it's super chill. I mean, I've been smoking since I was in high school. So 10 years, it was hard to just, I think it was a big part of my identity, which no one online knew about. I felt very insecure about telling people I smoked weed. So behind the scenes, I was a total stoner and had lots of stoner friends. And I loved it because it's just, chill. You know, we're all successful people, but we like to get high. And so I don't know, I felt really like I didn't know who I was for a while. And but it makes you have to be in tune with yourself, which is why I needed to do it. Hmm. It really landed with me when you said we're all very successful people and we just like to get high. Because I think that like, you know, growing up, as long as I got good grades, then I kind of like did whatever fucked up thing that I wanted to do and got away with it. Hell yes. Um, And then, yeah, as an adult, you're like, well, I make my own money. So whatever. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, I deserve this. That was my mindset. And if anyone, even my therapist was like, lay off of it. I was like, no, 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 I deserve it. Leave me alone. Mm. What made you make the decision? I always say that change isn't hard. It's the decision to change. That's the hardest. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't lie to myself anymore. I was very good at manipulating my own self into thinking that it was working for me, right? Because I was like, no, like it helps me relax. It doesn't help me relax because I end up binging or I end up not being able to wake up feeling refreshed or if I don't have it, I'm very angry. There was a point when one of my friends in 2020 asked me, oh, like, what would you look for if you were dating a guy? I said, oh, he definitely has to smoke weed. If he doesn't smoke weed, I won't date him. Mm. What? (laughs) Like, I was very confident in that too. I was like, ew, I would never date someone who doesn't smoke weed because the fact that it's such a big part of my identity is very interesting to me. Yeah. So how was it received when you shared it publicly? Because you said you were a little nervous about like the stigma. Oh, I was I was scared. You know why I wasn't scared? Because I knew I was proud of the sobriety part. But what I was scared of was, wow, these people are all going to think I've just been lying to them for how many years they've known me. Mm-hmm. I've never ever talked about smoking weed Mm -hmm. because I grew up, I'm 27. I grew up in a time where it was very stigmatized and it still very much is in a lot of ways. Not so much now, maybe 2021. Yeah. I didn't want people to feel like I was like a hiding from them. Yeah. 
but I was. Yeah. So I would say even I now, see. like when we go out for drinks, like, hey, let's do a boomerang with all our drinks. But if I'm like smoking yeah. a joint with my friends, it's like, nah, <laughs> I'm just going to keep this on the DL. <laughs> right. That's just so wild to me that drinking is just like so okay, but smoking is like. <sighs> That's wild but, to me too. But I think any, like you said, you can get dependent and addicted and yeah, just feel very consumed by truly anything, whether it's a mm-hmm. a substance or food or a relationship. Like yeah. these are all very common addictive patterns. And I think that a lot of them coexist for people who have eating disorders too. Like I think I've never met somebody who just like, has an eating disorder. Like it's always like anxiety, depression. Like I have this other thing and it just, they all kind of coexist. Of course we all have our own set of problems. So I guess that goes for anyone, but I feel like those, especially like they come in a package deal. Yeah. All these behaviors and addictions we have are actually just symptoms, symptoms of what dealing with something in a way. So I just knew that if I kept doing this, I'm never going to break the habit of always wanting to be numbed out. I will never be brave enough to feel my feelings and deal with them on a daily basis because I don't have to. If I'm high, I can opt out. And I felt just so empty inside. And so I just admitted to my therapist, I think I got to cut this out. And it was really scary to say to her because once I do, then it's real. But that's when I knew I had to say it because there's no way that I was going to quit on my own. I was my own enabler. Yeah, I felt really proud of it. But um, oh my God, I miss it. Are you kidding me? And I'm not even about extremism. You know, I definitely would want to do it. I'm not against doing that. But sometimes you got to know when something causes you to do something else. Mm-hmm. How do you feel now? Oh, girl, when summertime comes around, it's pretty hard to be sober because so many of my life's memories are, you know, smoking with my friends and having nights out with, you know, just doing that. I mean, it was such a big part of my friendships and relationships. Guys I've dated were also really Mm. into it. It's just normal. So sometimes I just, I really miss it. But I do remember most of it also me just having to battle, like wanting to binge a lot, wanting to keep doing it to numb out. It's easy to glamorize a lot of the fun. Yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay. And I I kind of enjoy knowing that I do miss it because a long time sobriety was very, very easy and I didn't care. And that felt weird too. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I am coming to Chicago like next week. So we're going to have like wait. a fun day, sober day, because my sister also might be with us. Yes. And maybe we can like recreate that story. I'm so excited. I can't believe we're <laughs> going to meet in real life and hug in real life. Me too. Me too. I like, uh, I, I truly can't wait for, so I've never been to Chicago in the summer. And second of all, I think like traveling is just so much better when you like know somebody there you oh, can yeah. hang out with friends and like, I'm so excited to meet you. I'm going to freak out and fangirl. Um, and I can't Chicago in the summer is the most fun. I'm going to take you places, girl. I've heard. I've heard. I bet that better be a promise because I cannot wait. Kelly, before we farewell, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish I did? Well, I know that we have a history of toxic relationships and I know we don't have 55 days of 
time to talk about that. But did you want to touch on that? Because I feel like that's something we've really, really vibed on, um, unfortunately. But it's also really served us in a lot of ways. And you'll get a lot of people who talk about toxic relationships, but it is not easy for people to talk from personal experience. But you and I are pretty open about that. Yeah. So um, first of all, tell me about how you define toxic. My version of toxic was definitely didn't know I was toxic for seven whole years in this very long relationship that was extremely codependent. Wait, this was all one relationship? Yeah, but but here, here, you'll know what means toxic, right? So there was this person that I started dating when I was 19, and it was super on and off, extremely codependent. We dated other people in between. We lived together for like a year or two years and break up, then live together for two years, three years, go on family vacations with each other. It's like you couldn't, you couldn't let go of also like the addictive nature of that. And for me, toxic was knowing that. One, I don't think this person and I really, really even liked each other that much, but we loved each other very, very much. And we couldn't handle finding ourselves. So we just kept running back to find parts of each other and fix parts of each other. Very much bonded over the fact that we were messed up. Uh, You know, we both had pretty broken families and, you know, we met each other at a time when we needed each other and we couldn't let go of that and grow on our own. And, you know, I never learned about what narcissistic personality disorder was until that relationship ended because we ended up going to a couples therapist who uh, told me that this person probably has that. And I Googled it when I went home and was like, what is that? So narcissistic personality disorder, I'm not going to really give a definition of it. I encourage you all to Google it. But there's a lot of similar characteristics between a narcissist and a codependent. You both don't have a sense of self, except for a narcissist will do a lot of things to project onto you. They also are not capable of empathy and they really love to gaslight and manipulate you to get you to do whatever they want. And codependents do that too, but we do have empathy. Codependents are also manipulative. So we are both just doing that, except I have a brain and a heart and that person kind of doesn't have a heart. Mm. It sounds like a codependent and a narcissist really tend to find each other. It's the, it's the most lethal addiction that's so prevalent. I mean, it's incredible once you start researching it, how much material there is on that. But I've learned so much from that. Like, Mary, have you been in a toxic relationship? I mean, I know, but like... Did it feel like yes. that or was it completely different? It was exactly like that. Oh, cool. Um, it was in a in a heightened, well, I think that's comparative, but. No, yeah. Long story short, I was in a relationship with an addict. Oh, to- oh yeah. I've, yeah. I've, and yeah, I think I always had symptoms of codependency because of my parents, but I think that's what made me develop codependency because a codependent and an addict yes. go hand in hand because codependents love to take care and, and constantly bend over backwards for someone else. And you're always walking on eggshells, like trying not to do anything to trigger them into their addiction. And this was specific to drug addiction. Mm -hmm. And it was also, he was like a very high functioning addict, like IE millionaire and like very well established. And like, it was, it was just like a very fucked up 
isolating situation. So that was my experience. I think there were some narcissistic traits. I wouldn't yeah. say he was a full-blown narcissist. We still like For are sure. pretty good friends and we were Aww, able. That's so cool. Yeah, it was tough. But after a few years of him going through recovery and everything, like we were able to kind of maintain like a really good relationship with healthy boundaries and more so like a friendship and a mutual understanding of like, we loved each other. It was just wrong time. And we're just not meant to be together. And that was the biggest lesson I had to learn was like, you can love someone but not want to be with them. But when you said that we loved each other, but we didn't like each other. One yeah. time when I got in a fight and I remember him screaming that at me being being like, I love you, but I don't like you. And that's Damn. also like a very important distinction. Like it's one thing to love. And it's another thing to like and actually like know what's good for you or not. I know that's the scariest thing was when I reflect back. I know that that you always do have a gut feeling. You know, all of us, we stay in a lot of things because most of your brain and your heart is in it, but your gut is crying, dying inside. And I always knew anytime we'd get back together, I'd be like, I keep I keep trying to paint a picture of us. I'm writing a story and it's not coming true. And I would just settle. Like I was, I've also, every guy that I've dated has had addiction. So drug, alcohol, porn, and then a cheating addiction, apparently. Oh, that sounds like really fun. <laughs> yeah. And, but it makes sense too, right? Until I was ready for myself to recognize where I was toxic to myself, I had a toxic relationship with my own self and I wasn't working on myself. Of course, I'm going to end up dating a lot of people that kind of mesh well in my inability to grow too. Like, mm -hmm. as soon as I rid of all these people, I can't even picture ever being in that scenario ever again. Yeah. Can you? No, definitely it's not. It's like, what? I mean, there's no chance. Yeah, it's just like a non-option. Like, I don't even have a fear of... Because I think when I first got out of that relationship, I was like, oh my God, well, what if I fall into that again? Or maybe I just attract toxic people and stuff like that. Where I'm at now, I'm like, no, there's like literally no chance. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit because of course, no, some of these well, narcissists will definitely manipulate anyone. True. So there's yeah. that aspect of it. But I, I feel very secure in myself that I feel pretty strongly that I wouldn't let that happen again. But I'm wondering, like, what was the turning point? How did you get out of that? When I stopped dating people who were toxic, well, I definitely I haven't dated someone in a long, long time. The last person that I dated was after that seven year relationship. He ended up having addiction problems. And I was like, Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? But you know, once again, there were some gut feelings in there where you kind of look at them and you're like, There's something there's something going on there. You know, like so the coolest part of what you and I have both gone through, I I think is definitely your gut feelings become the feel. It's not something you have to dig for. Like it directs you versus before you kind of bury them a little bit. But for that first relationship, I did not really decide to leave. The couple's therapist looked at me and said, I'm not diagnosing him, but I'm pretty sure he's a narcissist. You're definitely codependent and this is never going to work. Oh my God. That's so big that a therapist was able to be that honest. 
they don't do that. I feel like most therapists usually tiptoe and they help you like find your own, but maybe she like really fell for you and that you needed to get out fast. Yeah. It was a guy that he and I were going to see a couples counselor and I saw Mm -hmm. him privately after a huge blowout that we had had because essentially that partner was just cheating on me a lot and would continue doing it. Even though I asked them, I was a very different person back then. Okay, everyone. But when you're codependent, you'll lose your mind. Like you have no sense of self-worth. Like you're just so desperate for this to work that you get I manipulated my own self into thinking it was fine because he was so good at telling me he was doing it because of me. Just the typical shit, right? And I went in and was saying we had this huge blowout. And the only reason you told me that is because my ex-partner wasn't with me. And so, yeah, man, if a therapist tells you something like that, oh, that means you gotta run. It's Mm. over. It was terrible though, Mary. You know, when you break up from something that's a toxic relationship, I didn't feel relieved like I wish I did. I felt so sad. Yeah, you feel like empty, like that thing that was fueling you for so long is like no longer there. I mean, I guess it is just like an addiction. It is. The chaos that runs you, that distracts you, the intensity of having to care about someone else, like the emptiness, especially sharing your life with someone for so long. If anyone's listening, even your relationship also does not have to be toxic for you to no longer want to participate in it. You will feel obviously scared and empty. And my friends were genuinely worried about me like being able to live. Like they truly were worried that I wasn't going to because I was just so codependent. And that's just going to end one day. You're going to get over it. As scary Mm -hmm. as it is, you do. And there's no way that you'll ever believe that you do. Right, Mary? Like in those moments, did you ever go, this is never going to end? Oh, for sure. I remember one time because we were also breaking up, getting back together. I remember one time, I think this is when we, it was the beginning of the end. So it was not yet the end. But I remember coming back to our old apartment to get all my stuff. I had literally hired movers to get every last bit of my stuff. Like not just Just a suitcase like I used to do knowing that I would come back, you know? I love that you said that. That's so real. Like I literally got movers and I remember doing like a final walkthrough to make sure like I got everything. And he was like, take whatever furniture. And I remember we were living in this. Oh, oh, thanks for the furniture. I know. Thank right? you. Thank so you. nice of you. <laughs> um, I did need it though. Um, so <laughs> I remember we lived in this like high rise um, apartment with floor to ceiling windows. And we slept on this mattress. The, the rooms were very small. And so we had this like, I think queen, maybe king size mattress, but no bed frame or anything. We kind of just like put the mattress on the floor. And the Mm -hmm. room was so small that I kind of had to like put the mattress against the window. And I remember doing that just for like space sake. But then later reading in a feng shui book that your bed shouldn't be against a wall, that it should be in the middle if you can. And so I remember being like pish posh. We don't really have room for it to be in the middle. Otherwise, the bed is in the way. The room's too small, whatever. And I put the bed against the wall. This was like a year prior when we were getting this bed, moving into this apartment, whatever. And when I did that final walkthrough before the movers were about, like we were about to go, I am looking at this bed that's against the wall. And I had an overwhelming feeling of it was all my fault. I should have moved the bed away from the wall. 
Oh my God. And I started bawling my eyes out and I ran to the living room and I'm like looking out of these windows. We lived like right across from the big river in Calgary. And it was it's a beautiful view. It was like very romantic. I know it sounds very like cinematic, but I'm literally standing there with this like, oh my God, like if only I had moved the bed away from the wall, our feng shui wouldn't have been off and this wouldn't have ended. And he walked in. <gasps> saw me crying and all this stuff. And it was just like this very sad moment. I don't think we got back together then, although we did end up getting back together like a few weeks or a month after. Oh, for sure. For sure. But I remember in that moment thinking like I would literally do anything to go back. But it was kind of like I I positioned myself where I put like a security deposit down on apartment, the movers were there and all this stuff. But had I not done that. So anyways, the point of the whole story is first of all, that you really tend to blame yourself. And that's a big sign of toxic relationships and narcissistic abuse and everything is like when you find yourself blaming yourself, as opposed to like, we're two different people, we sucked for each other. You know, we got in this fight, both sided, like you can really, when you're in a healthy relationship, usually you're even angry at the other person. You're like, fuck you, (laughs) you know, right? Whereas this one, yeah, the big sign is that you're literally blaming yourself. And then the only Mm -hmm. way to get through that is to like physically make it so that you can't go back. Like whether you have somebody to keep you accountable or like in my case, like it was money is like a big motivator for me. So I put security deposits down on this new apartment and I hired these movers and I did things to set myself up to at least move out. And I say it was the beginning of the end because once I moved out, I was able to eventually get out of the relationship. But anyways, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have got out. What helped you get out? Oh, Mary, that's exactly what happened to me. So one fight was, you know, I'm just going to say this story because, you know, a lot of uh, people feel scared to share stories about other people, but you lived it. So it's your story, right? So this is this person that he was cheating on me with and we got into a fight. You know why we got into a fight? Because we we're living together and we were driving home from the gym we had, he had worked at. You know, it's so funny too, Mary. Like I was this person who was like a big go-getter in my life, had a good career. And this person, I'm not trying to shame them, but like a lot of times people who don't have a lot of self-worth date people who are just on completely different planets. Like, so he worked at this gym. We're driving home and I said, look, I think our relationship is really toxic and I think we should break up. Like, I understand it's hard for us, but I just think one of us needs to move out. He was so angry at me. We get home. He goes into his bedroom, calls the person that he'd been cheating on me with, looks at me and is laughing at me while they're on the phone with them. They say, I'm going to come see you soon. What a psychopath. What? Wait, did I hear that right? This is what I dealt with all the time, Mary. That cut that level of abuse and control and manipulation. I woke up in that moment and realized you have lost your mind. I said that to him. I said, you have lost your mind. That is a really crazy, weird thing to do. Not even mean. That's weird yeah. to do. Th- How old are you? And I lived with, yeah, I was, we were living together and I just, I packed a duffel, grabbed my pillow and I just ran out because luckily I had my own car. And as I'm running down the stairs from our apartment, I just knew this is the last time I'm going to see this dude. I mean, all Mm -hmm. my stuff's still there, but I knew. And he said, if you leave right now, we're never going to get back together. And I was like, yeah. And everything changed. It was insane. I was running down the stairs and I get in my car and I'm like, where am I going to go? You know, I live in a different city than my family. And Mm -hmm. so I called this one girl that I've been friends with from the gym. And I said, can I just stay over? And 
ever since that day, I had a close relationship with his family. And you know, it's so crazy too, Mary, his family knew that he had a lot of issues. So it was actually his mother who helped him move out. And she was the person I would communicate with because I blocked him. Because I knew if I ever let him contact me again, I would be very vulnerable to running back. So I coordinated everything with her for them to move out as fast as possible. And I just never even had a conversation with him because I tried for how many years? And the last six months of the relationship was me just saying, hey, can you stop cheating? And him being like, no, it's all your fault. You're making me feel bad when you're sad. When you cry, I don't understand why you're crying. He Mm. would like hold me while I was crying about him cheating. It was really scary. Like, how insane was I? I lost my mind completely. And I hid it from everyone. Yeah. Well, the thing about relationships like that, like it happens gradually, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not like... It happens gradually. They literally, what is it called? They basically train you to accept that. Yes. And to like almost be grateful for it. Oh, yeah. He would be like, aren't you so grateful I didn't go fuck that person tonight and I'm with you. Mary, I'm not kidding you. It was that. What was I doing? I was such a poor lost soul. Jeez. You were trying to find your way among so many things that were going on in your life and had been going on in your life. Mm -hmm. And I'm so proud of you. I always feel really weird saying that. I wish there was another way to say that because (laughs) I'm not like your mom. But I am so proud of you for getting out of that just because I know how how hard that can be. And to anybody... It means a lot. It means a lot coming from you because I've never known someone who really understands this level of how toxic something can be. Most people are just like, they often do look at you like you're the problem. Yeah. You know, they're like, how could you let that happen? I'm like, I don't know, you tell me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody will know unless they've been through it. And I think that's the same thing with like a lot of different types of abuse. It's, that's why, I mean, the stupidest question you can ask a victim of any kind of abuse or domestic violence is like, well, why'd you let that happen? It's like, just, fucking take your ignorant ass somewhere else (laughs) like it can truly happen to anybody and oftentimes it happens to the strongest people we know people you would never even think you know people who have everything going for them and yeah it just it's just it's it's scary so anyways red flags to look out for (laughs) yeah anyone who wants to help you a red flag is truly anyone who encourages you to doubt all your thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. They actually want you to completely dissociate from trusting yourself and they enjoy it. They want to be your only source of brain. So they want their brain to be the brain you trust only. Mm -hmm. They love you being very dependent on them. And that unfortunately looks like them just being very caring. So you really cannot detect that for a long time. Yep. And you know how they do this psychologically? I'm sure you know this, but for somebody who doesn't know, got to explain this. So psychologically, what they do is they make you feel really, really high yeah, and really, really low. Yes. And what happens is when you attribute both your highest highs and your lowest lows to one person, your brain just like tricks itself into thinking that that person is the only one who can like heal you and make you better. But it disregards the fact that that person was the one who beat you down in the first place. Oh, and so it's that's why you keep going back is because you're like, well, that feeling like it's it's literally hormonal, like it's literally chemical, like it's, it has nothing to do with rationality. It's all chemical because, yeah, they will beat you down and then they will bring you back up. And because they beat you down, you feel like that they're the only person who could make it better. And then they do make it better. 
And so you associate like it's like it's really, really it's psychotic in the most literal sense. Ugh. Yes. Oh, Mary is literally like the first time that he had told me he slept with somebody else. He gave me flowers the next day. And I literally was like, oh, my God, you're the nicest person ever. What the fuck? Yeah. I used to get like literally like gardens. He would call them gardens. (gasps) It was gardens of flowers and (sighs) jewelry and vacations and apologies, even like verbal, but like anything that's like over the top. Normal people are like, I fucked up. I'm so sorry. I won't do this again. It's going to take time to heal. You know, it's going to be rocky, right? And I'm talking about like if you get in a fight or something bad happens, right? But narcissists will like, they go from one extreme to another. Oh, yeah. One of the another biggest red flags is that they do not want to say, I messed up. I deserve to have to work for your trust. Toxic people feel like they deserve your trust immediately and they get angry with you if you're angry with them. That is not normal. Mm-hmm. It is That's called gaslighting. Yeah, it makes no sense for someone. I've been told numerous times by that person, I hate when you're upset with me. Why do you think I'm upset with you? Yeah. Yeah. And the and the love bombing is, I mean, so stereotypical what you're saying with all these gifts sure. and making up. Ugh. I'm proud of you, girl. Oh, thank you. I think these are really important distinctions to make just because I think the word toxic gets thrown around a lot. And I think most of us think like, oh, well, if we didn't work out, then they were toxic. Instead of being like, no, like like there's actual warning flags to really, really toxic people. This goes for anything, not just romantic relationships. And it's not just a matter of like, oh, I didn't, I don't like his sense of humor or <laughs> we just like didn't work out or we got in a fight. Like people fight, like yeah. even my boyfriend, and I, we've gotten into like blowout fights, but it's like right. how you come out of them that shows people's true colors. Correct. And yeah, whether or not they actually might have, if not narcissistic personality disorder, then narcissistic tendencies for sure. Yes. The other thing about it is like, like you said, codependents and narcissists beat each other. So if somebody has narcissistic tendencies and you're a codependent and keep in mind, your codependency is developing and growing and getting stronger just as their narcissistic tendencies are growing and developing and getting stronger. So the biggest favor that you could do, not just for yourself, but even for that other person and their future and their future relationships is to leave because you're mm-hmm. putting an end to that fire. This obviously doesn't apply to people who like uh, have a full-blown diagnosis, like chemical imbalance, but mm-hmm. I'm talking about somebody who you can see that they're just getting worse or whatever. You're also fueling that. And I say that not with blame, but I say that with just like what is happening in the relationship, like treating it as a separate entity, like the best thing you can do for all parties is to stop enabling that and get the fuck out. Yeah, because the only reason you and I are no longer like that is because we had to force an exit. No one ever prances out of toxic relationship being like, so proud of myself, everyone. Look at me. You're, you have to retrain your entire existence. Your whole life's going to change. You might go broke. You might feel so lost. That's the point. You actually should be lost because you were drowning lost. Yeah. You're just lost without the, the chaos and the need for this cycle. We always forget when you're in a toxic cycle it's because 
you're liking it in a way Mm -hmm. that serves you. You don't love it in terms of smileys. You like it because your system feeds off of it. And why? Maybe we had that in our childhood. Don't know. (laughs) But uh, you do it because it works. And so you have to teach yourself that it's not working. And you tell yourself that till you finally see it. It's not about believing it. You got to see it because you're not seeing it. And the longer you stay in this fog of a relationship, you're going to go blind like I did. Yeah. Amen to that. My therapist, (laughs) the first homework she gave me was a journal prompt. And the question was, why am I addicted to drama-filled, chaotic love? Mm-hmm. And the follow-up to that, the mantra that we keep kept repeating and talking about is stability is sexy. Oh, yes. Because my whole thing was like, you know, if it's not passionate and chaotic and dramatic, yeah. then it's boring. Yeah. And so I had to really retrain my brain to, yeah, to really accept stable, healthy love. Oh, totally. Because... I didn't even know how to provide that to myself either, right? My relationship with myself is so chaotic. I'll go from hate to no, you deserve love. No, accept yourself. No, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? So we have to do that (laughs) with ourselves too. And recently someone asked me, I can't remember who it was, but they said, you know, what are you looking for in a relationship? And I was like, honestly, something that is calm and grounded because that's what I realize will bring me close to someone and allow me to sink into it. Because yeah, when things are so hot and heavy, or just chaotic, that was a way for me to engage in actually not being so vulnerable, or too vulnerable too quick. That's also something you really notice is Mm -hmm. when I was younger, and my friends and I would talk about guys we were dating. (laughs) I remember saying, just kind of like with the weed thing about how I wanted them to smoke weed. I'd say, mm, I can't date anyone who like hasn't gone through something. As, trauma bonding, right? Because that's all I knew how to date. I just trauma bonded. And so I would legitimately believe that unless they suffered with anxiety and depression, we wouldn't want each other. <laughs> I've literally had that exact thought. Yeah, 100% have had that thought. <laughs> yeah, it's like I always say, I don't want a relationship unless we go balls to the wall. Oh, my God. I mean, that could still happen in better ways. Yeah, and it did. Like, even an example, (laughs) I quite literally, I see, I see. That didn't even land on me until later. No, it's okay. You got it. Um, Well, even with Stan, like, I was trying to make that happen. And I remember, like, two months into our relationship, I was like, we're going to go to Italy and go on this two-week trip together to really get to know each other. Oh, my God. And we did. So I tried to create drama obviously it didn't work it was like the best trip of our lives we had ups and downs especially the first week because we were both outside of our element you know and both getting to know each other after long story short I was traveling for like six weeks and then we went on this trip so we were like re-getting to know each other after originally only knowing each other for like a month and meeting online and all this stuff so anyways even though I tried to create drama what I noticed was that the way we would solve problems is what was a green light. Yeah. It was like, you know, it's not that we didn't have problems. It was the way we would solve them that, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that we didn't snap at each other or get annoyed or say shit we shouldn't have, but it was like, what was the follow-up? Like what happened after? And that's what really showed me that this is different. 
but seems healthy. I don't know if I like it, but let me explore, you know. Your relationship and your journey to that relationship inspires me a lot because, you know, I for a long time have worried that I'll never find someone. But now that I'm so connected with myself, I really do fully believe that I'm not worried about my future. Like I can see it, me having such a healthy relationship. And it just, everyone listening, it's been uh, like two years for me. I don't date, I haven't talked to anybody and not because I don't want to, but I kind of don't just because I, I wanting to now just because you kind of really need that period of recovery. And I've been a serial dater, a serial monogamist ever since I was 15. I have never not gone more than a month without talking to a guy, dating a guy. So I want to encourage you all to not be afraid of genuinely how fulfilling it is with many lonely moments of just doing you because how are you going to date and be yourself if you don't even know who you are? Mm. Amen to that. I think that is a lovely place to end on that beautiful mic drop slash truth bomb. Thank you so much, Kelly. Where can we find you, learn from you, and connect with you online? Mm, Thank you so much for having me. I love talking to you. Well, I have my own podcast. Finally, you can listen to the Therapy Thursday podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram. Just type in Kelly U. That's the letter U. You can also type in Kelly U on YouTube. I talk basically about everything. I think I've gone through so much in my life, and I think whatever you're going through too, we'll be able to vibe with each other, at least on the feels. So hit me up. I can't wait to spend some time with you. And Mary, I can't wait to see you in a couple weeks. Thank you for having me. Likewise. I love you so much. Thank you everybody for listening and we'll talk to you soon. One last thing before we farewell, if you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, we would greatly appreciate if you could leave a short review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Your feedback helps the show so, so much. I absolutely love hearing from you. And as somebody whose love language is words of affirmation, your words mean the world to me. Just go to the Apple Podcasts app and scroll all the way down until you see the review section. And from there, you can just tap the star thing and leave your own review. Thank you so much for supporting me and this greater message of self-love for all. Also, feel free to send this episode to a friend and spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, make sure you pick up my book, which is available in stores and online worldwide. Just head to maryscupoftea.com slash book, and you'll find all the links to give yourself the gift of self-love. I love you all so, so much, and I will talk to you next time. Mwah.